Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. Now, on with the show. Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, my name is Jamil Jaffer. I'm the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Anton Scalia Law School. I'm proud to be co-hosting this event today with the National Security Law Journal and the International Law Journal here at the Anton Scalia Law School. And today we'll be talking about uh, panel two, which is Fishing for Truth, Securing the Election from Cyber Attacks. Well, we, we had a panel last week at the same, uh, same time to talk about um, uh, issues related to the threats posed to our elections. Uh, by foreign interference. And today we're going to talk about how to secure these elections uh, from cyber attacks. So um, so we've got a great uh, group of panels here with us today, um, and I'll just introduce them and then we'll jump right into the conversation. For those of you in the audience, though, remember, keep uh, keep your eyes uh, and ears open. Uh, if you have questions or, or ideas, please throw them in the, in the Q&A function there. I'll take them along the way as well as at the end. And so we'll have a chance for you all to uh, have some interaction, ask some questions of the speakers too. So, um, so today uh, we're joined by uh, an awesome uh, group of uh, group folks. From starting with Andy Kaiser, uh, NS Andy is an NSI fellow. He served for almost a decade and a half on Capitol Hill uh, for former Intel House Intelligence Chairman Committee Chairman Mike Rogers. He was first a senior advisor to the committee. He was chief of staff, legislative director, handled all scope of national security policy issues, and as deputy national security advisor to the Trump transition team. Uh, Andy. Uh, advise the transition team's policy personnel and agency action teams on all aspects of national security. This included work on DOD, Homeland Security, Justice, State, the Intelligence Community, and the National Security Council. Andy was also the head writer for a nationally syndicated radio program and assisted in the production of the CNN series, Declassified. So Andy, thanks for being here with us. Now, second, we have Megan Stiefel. Megan is also a visiting fellow. She's an attorney and the founder of Silicon Harbor Consultants. She currently serves as senior policy counsel at the Global Cyber Alliance and is a non-resident senior fellow at the in the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative. Prior to that, Megan served as Cybersecurity Policy Director of Public Knowledge, and she previously served in the Obama Administration as Director for International Cyber Policy at the National Security Council and the U.S. Department of Justice as the Director for Cyber Policy in the National Security Division, where we worked together, and as Counsel in the Criminal Division's Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Josephine Wolf. Dr. Wolf is, the, is an Assistant Professor of Cybersecurity Policy at, the Tufts, at Tufts University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. Her research interests include the social economic costs of social cybersecurity incidents, cyber insurance, internet regulation, and the security responsibilities and liability of online intermediaries. Her book, You'll See This Message When It's Too Late, The Legal and Economic Aftermath of Cybersecurity Breaches, was published by MIT Press in 2018. She's also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, and her writing on cybersecurity has appeared in, in publications as diverse as Slate, The Washington Post, Lawfare, The Atlantic, and Wired. So we're super excited to have you, Andy, Megan, and Josephine. And we'll just jump right in uh, to the questions, uh, if that's all right with you all. Um, and I thought I would start right with the Senate Intelligence Committee report. So as we know, um, we've had a lot of sort of, uh, you know, uh, partisan activity on the House side and the House Intelligence Committee between, uh, between um, uh, the chairman, Adam Schiff, uh, the ranking member, Devin Nunez, a lot of partisan fighting. In the Senate, though, we've seen some sort of bipartisanship We've actually seen uh, the leaders of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, Senator Richard Burr, uh, now been replaced by Senator Marco Rubio, um, and, and Senator Mark Warner, really come together on an Intelligence Committee report about the 2016 election. So, um, you know, for you all, what were, you guys have, you guys have looked at this report, what were, uh, you know, the, some of the key takeaways that you thought were the most important or striking? Andy, we'll start with you. 
Sure, thanks for that, uh, Jamil. Nice to be uh, on with everyone uh, this afternoon. Lovely uh, day in Washington uh, for a good discussion. So um, let's see, what was striking to me? The First of all, the comprehensive uh, nature of the Russian side of this operation. So I think if you compare the Mueller report, uh, which I also read uh, when that came out on vacation one day, we're all have issues when we <laughs> stuff like this, but um, pretty interesting vacation. Yeah, exactly. So if you read that and compare it to to this report, I thought this was just a much more uh, comprehensive uh, sort of look at what the Russians intentions were, the sophistication of the operation, which uh, uh, Megan and Josephine will get into on, on the, the sophistication of the active measures campaign. But one of my biggest takeaways was um, this wasn't just a, you know, I think on the Trump campaign side, there were certainly some folks who were fumbling around in the night who maybe weren't the A team or the B team. Um, who you know you had some relationships that were highly problematic, uh, like Paul Manafort, going back with the Russians to 2004. Right. Um, but I thought the more interesting piece we we've learned all about that. We went through uh, uh, congressional hearings. We went through the Mueller report. Uh, we went through lots an impeachment of, process. The impeachment process, slightly related, but lots of leaks to to the media on on that topic. The piece we didn't get was was the Russian side, which mm -hmm. which I thought was indicative. And then, of course, for for those of us who who pay attention to the Russians' activities over time, this wasn't necessarily a, a, a new phenomenon, then looking to influence elections. We can find examples of that going back 100 years. Uh, but the level of sophistication, obviously, the new platforms that allow them to be more successful here with social media and other things are a little different than the old days when they used to put up uh, billboards and hand out pamphlets, uh, right. infiltrate the, the Communist Party leadership around the world, including in the U.S., to try to shape opinion. A little different platform, uh, but highly sophisticated from Vladimir Putin on down to try to uh, hurt who they assumed would be the, the next president of the United States, Hillary Clinton, in a similar way they did to Emmanuel Macron in the 2017 right. uh, French elections. Right. So, Josephine, what what in your mind was sort of most uh, concerning or or troubling, or what what has the most impact in your mind for the twenty twenty elections from the from this uh, from this uh, report from the Senate Intelligence Committee? I think two things that sort of stood out to me because a lot of the kind of technical details in the report are things that we've heard in various forms before. We've heard from the indictments out of the Mueller investigation mm -hmm. that there were some of these tactics like purchasing ads and seeding false troll and bot accounts on social media platforms. But two things that I think this report really sort of drove home were first of all, the scale of these operations, how many right. different platforms they were operating on. That, and that not just that this was happening at a large scale, but that the scale was part of the point, right? That that was kind of the strategy in place here was to drown people in so much information and disinformation that right. it would be impossible or really difficult for people to wade through all of it. And I think yeah. sort of when we think about what we can take away from that for the 2020 election, we really have to be thinking about how are we helping people deal with this flood of information? What are the platforms doing? What are policymakers yeah. doing? Because if that's the strategy sort of still today and it looks for various reasons like it may well be, then yeah. that's a really big piece of sort of trying to understand how do we address it. And the other piece of that, which again, isn't brand new out of this report, but which this report makes very clear is this mix of sort of 
illicit materials that are being stolen from parties like the DNC or wherever else, and then being released to intermediaries. Right. Like, and sort of mixing that in with the disinformation campaigns, with the yeah. troll accounts and all of that on social media. And there, I think the takeaways we really need for 2020 have to do with doing a much better job of locking yeah. down various accounts associated with campaigns, trying to make sure that sort of all of that infrastructure associated, not with the election itself and the voting, though that's also very important to secure, yeah. but even just with the campaigns and the officials involved with those is also being secured at a very high level. Yeah, so so Megan, you know, one of the things Josephine just mentioned is sort of this, this sort of torrent of information uh, that's coming at us that's that's false or modified or amplifies information already in the environment. I think the Senate report called it a fire hose of falsehoods. Uh, it's kind of a great, a great sort of uh, alliteration. And then they went through this whole, uh, you know, litany of things. You know, large number of channels, large number of, of, of methodologies. Um, how do we cope with what 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 I think Josephine has rightly described as a, as just a flood of of data? And it, it, is that is that flood getting bigger as we're looking at 2020? And and if so, what do we do about that? So oh, first, thanks for having me. Um, and I just have to preface, as, as I think most of you would expect, these are just my thoughts and the thoughts of nobody else with whom I'm affiliated. So with that caveat out there, um, I would say that, yes, I think it is, it's getting larger, more platforms have come online. We now have TikTok to deal with. Not that I've necessarily seen that as, as the front and center method by which some of this um, information, so-called information is being shared, but certainly um, more places to try and keep, keep a watchful eye on. And it, I mean, that to be too sort of, theoretical and probably to give you, especially for Jamil, an unsatisfactory answer. But it, to me, among other things, it really speaks to the need for us to think about how resilient Americans are and why it is that they're so willing to kind of take the bait. Um, so, uh, and how can we, in the face of that kind of, uh, I would call it kind of soft underbelly of our willingness to, yeah. to, to believe stuff that we know is full, um, almost or totally fabricated, um, what else can we do from a technical standpoint to try and help users understand that what they're seeing may be information that is is either not accurate or is being um, yeah. you know, remotely accurate and being amplified? Um, and I think as the report talks about, progress has been made. I think there's still a long way to yeah. to go. Um, but one of the things, just to, to to circle back on a question that you posed, I think first to Andy, is the conversation around. Um, the Bureau and counterintelligence and the way that okay. some of this was was organized in the very beginning. And I've been buried under a host of other things, as is, are many people, um, including trying to become a second grade teacher over the past few months. So I haven't had a chance to try I was and just teaching out. science myself. So believe you me, I get it. Yes. Um, so uh, that's not something that I've seen talked about much in the press. And I don't know that we necessarily want to start talking about counterintelligence, because I think that yeah. further removes this conversation from the everyday voter. Yeah. Um, but for those of us in the national security space, it's not, I would have, I might've expected to see more of that among kind of the, again, the, the kind of national security intelligentsia. Yeah. Um, and whether or not now we are, you know, is there more that needs to be kind of considered around counterintelligence authorities and that will give like send shivers up the spines of, of many of the, yeah. of our friends outside of this community. But yeah. How did this, we, I think we still have a gap of, of I don't want to call it collection, but insight. Um, and yeah. what else can we do that's advances and is, is mindful of our values, but can help us better, um, better 
make a more resilient populace, even if it's through a combination of technical and, and kind of policy levers. Yeah, so I want to say I want to say with you, Megan, on this issue because I want to, I want to talk about counterintelligence. I, I want to come back to uh, at the end of our conversation. I want to talk to Josephine also about about this question of resilience and how to create a more resilient American public. Because I think you're right that one of the biggest challenges we have is sort of how do we cope with the fact that we are very vulnerable? We're willing to listen to. I mean, the idea that QAnon right is actually taken seriously by a significant portion of the population, you know, and that and that 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 sort of messaging is is able to be is able to reopt and 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 amplified by uh, foreign sources is a huge problem, but I want to talk about counterintelligence. So, so help us for those of the audience who don't know what that is and, and, and why it's relevant here. Just tell us what you mean by what is the what is the counterintelligence concern or what is the counterintelligence sort of response that you're looking for when it comes to Russian interference? What is that all about? And by the way, for the people in the audience, I see there's 62 of you out there. Um, feel free to throw your questions in the Q and A box. Uh, we'll be taking questions along the way as well as at the end. Uh, so, Megan, counterintelligence. What do you mean, and and why is it relevant to this question about Russians trying to interfere in our elections, or others, frankly, we, we heard about the Iranians yesterday. I'm trying to find the exact piece of the report um, that, that spoke to this, and I'm probably not going to be able to find the page, but it looked as though, I can find it here, um, rather than thinking about And, and you know, how would we, where else might this this um, objective, so I'm not going to totally answer your question, I'm going to kick it over to That's Andy okay. in a second here, but um, rather than thinking about the the possibility of, because I actually don't think that it's a counterintelligence issue. So it's curious to me that the FBI kind of stuck the look, stuck examining um, or delegated examining Russian interference in 2016 back to into the tel- counterintelligence division at, at, okay. at FBI, right? The FBI there in the counterintelligence is looking to see if, for example, we have our, um, as Andy mentioned at the very beginning, we had questions around um, Paul Manafort and the like that. Yes counterintelligence issue there, right? We have Russians trying to infl- infiltrate, infiltrate um, the US. parts of our, yeah. yes. As opposed to, um, it, it, when I think about counterintelligence, I usually think about trying to infiltrate the government or those likely to become actors in, in, a, in a future administration, right. as opposed to trying to, um, which is probably an unfair uh, uh, division of, of responsibilities, but, um, where else should should that type of responsibility fall within within the FBI? Yeah. I think it's it's an well, open question. Um, yeah. Well, let's ask, let me, let's ask let's ask Andy that question because I want I'm actually interested because you made the, you made the point that maybe that I mean maybe that's part of the problem with this investigation, right? When it when when it kicked off was they looked at it as as a well the president might be influenced by the Russians, right? Or his administration might be influenced by the Russians, and maybe that that made it harder for us to respond to the active measures campaigns going on that were really designed to by creating that narrative actually undermine uh, the effectiveness of, the, of those of those things. And Josephine, I mentioned your thoughts on this, and also I am gonna come to you on this question of how we can be more resilient. But Andy, uh, since, since Megan raised it, um, do you think there might've been a flaw in the way that the, that the administration handled, the prior administration handled the investigation, um, sort of looking at it as a, as a measure, as an effort to actually infiltrate the government versus an effort to influence the American voter into believing the government might be infiltrated? And aren't the two different? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think if you, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but if if you take a look back at what was actually effective and what wasn't, um, you know, I think you could make a, a pretty easily make an argument that the influence operation, the information operation, uh, had a had more of an impact than, you know, Carter Page's influence on Donald Trump's positions on Russia. Um, so obviously the Russians are smart. They're they're looking to get any tentacles uh, in 
you know, in a in a transition in a campaign that they can, um, and they they got what they could get. But um, the piece I think that that Megan is correct on that is more concerning and probably had a, a much larger impact is is on the information side, and it was yeah. almost exclusively done via social media, via our, our own platforms. Um, and of course, yeah, one of the interesting things to me in the report is, as I mentioned, the sophistication. They, you know, the Russians were very good about figuring out, you know, occasionally they got it laughably wrong, but, um, you know, figuring out what, what we want to hear, what we want to believe, micro-targeting right. that to, um, you know, we've all self-curated our own uh, information bubble, and the Russians were smart enough to, you know, seed in little little tidbits yeah. that um, you know millions of us of our fellow Americans were happy to share along, and they were um, completely made up. Yeah. So, Josephine, are we thinking about this all wrong? Are we are we getting bollocked up in this whole what the administration did and didn't do the last time around, and and really uh, focus on the wrong thing? How should we think about this counterintelligence issue? And then does that have any impact on um, on what we ought to do to become more resilient as a country? And I, I would note, by the way, I see General Hayden's out there in the audience. And so I'm sure he has thoughts on this too. So, so sir, if you want to want to jump in, please feel free to jump in in the, in the Q&A thing and we'll, we'll, we'll see what you have to say about it too. Josephine, over to you. So I, I do think it matters sort of what the administration did in the lead up to the 2016 election and what the current administration is doing now in the lead up to the 2020 election. Yeah. And I think that, there have been mistakes made on both fronts, probably, about being sufficiently transparent, being sufficiently proactive about addressing this. I think it's been hard because there's such a political bent to the disinformation that in both cases, there has been some level of discomfort around right. sort of how do we address this in a way that doesn't seem really politically motivated around right. our own interests. What I would say is that kind of the most active decision making that I have seen um, since the 2016 election around disinformation is coming out of the private sector, is not coming from Congress, is not coming from the executive branch, that the entities that are really sort of trying to address head on the question of what do you do about this are Facebook and Twitter, YouTube. Mm -hmm. And I think there are kind of two approaches that we've seen from, from these companies, both of which are kind of interesting to watch. And I'm, I'm going to sort of generalize here because there are a yeah. lot of between, but on the one hand, you have the Facebook approach, which is we don't censor, we just try to provide people with more information about when they're viewing something that's fake. So if you go read the yeah. Facebook policy on fake news, which you can do, it's public, right? They explicitly say we don't remove fake news. We try to sort of move it lower in the news feed. We try mm -hmm. to label it so people know that it's not true. But that's that's what they've embraced. And so it's like a transparency play. Say again. It's like a transparency play. Yeah, sort of like a, a very kind of US anti-censorship. We don't limit what you can read or what you can see. We just try to give you more information. Right. And then the Twitter approach has been like, we're gonna try to remove political ads. We're gonna try to remove bot accounts. We're gonna try to sort of clean up some of this content so it's not flooding you. And I think the interesting question when you read this report is, can you scale that Facebook approach of providing more labels, providing more warnings to a point where it can actually handle the, that, that fire hose that they're describing in this report? Yeah. And I think once you sort of start to understand the scale, it starts to seem like a much more daunting task to educate everybody yeah. about all of these different kinds of information on all of these different platforms in a way that will be effective. Yeah. 
No, scale's hard, but but Josephine, it's also hard, right? What, what Twitter's doing, right? Uh, when they are removing content, because then they get accused of bias, right? They're, it's okay. Well, if you remove this, sometimes, I mean, because sometimes their 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 removal algorithms hit stuff that's that's you know sort of political content. How do you solve? I mean, what's is there is there a right answer here? I mean, the, the, it seems to me the companies are a very very tough position, and frankly, an, a, an unwinnable position, right? You, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. What what is what's the right answer? Is there a right answer here? No, I don't think there's going to be an answer that makes everybody happy. There are going to yeah. be answers that, you know, I think are better than others. I will say, you know, the way they've dealt mostly with this issue of how do you do this in a way that doesn't piss off one political party more than the other. Twitter has tried by saying we're blocking all political ads, right? This is yeah. not, you know, Democrats or Republicans. We're just going to go ahead and put that off the table. Facebook has tried by taking the opposite tack of saying we're allowing all the political ads. We're not going to try yeah. to censor that. And they still both get in trouble all the time with members of both political parties, right? And right. I guess that would be one way to say that they're You're doing, doing it right. as balanced a way as they can, right. that there are a lot of Democrats who feel they are not taken down enough. There are a lot of Republicans who feel they're being censored and way too much is being taken down. Yeah. And it's a pretty unwinnable position. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Megan, uh, what, what do, you, do you have thoughts on this? What, how do you think we ought to be playing this thing out? Well, now it's a little bit late to, to come back to this, the, the point about counterintelligence. So we, we can move on. I don't want to. Okay. Um, I, I see, that's fine. I see, an, I see a question from the audience. Samantha Lewis asks um, whether we're worried about foreign state actors actually breaching voting machines. You know, this has been a topic that we've talked about a lot in the lead up to the 2018 midterm elections and now the 2020, um, uh, you know, presidential elections. Um, do we worry about actual voting machine breaches? And if we do, I mean, I, you know, as a DEF CON last year, I think Megan, you were there. Um, you know, we, we saw people hacking into voting machines. That's something that clearly can be done. But are we worried about this being done at scale and being able to actually affect an outcome of an election? And if so, what steps, if any, have we taken to really address those attacks? Megan, do you have any thoughts on this front? Sure. Um, so you, I think, touched on the key point, which is scale. So even if we have, God forbid, a voting system or a, a system of voting systems that is uh, can be compromised, I think it's fair to question whether or not that compromise can actually have a meaningful impact on the outcome of the election because of the federated, if you will, right. not the right word, nature of our of our voting process. But I think that's not a point that's getting out enough. Um, we're still having, and I, if, you know, to the extent that there are any journalists watching this, um, would urge them to drive home some of the facts behind the voting system and the security yeah. of voting systems. So um, I think one of the other questions in that question was whether, you know, what's being done to, about that and we're seeing a number of, of actions, additional resources have been allocated um, from, from Congress to help um, shore up the security of voting systems. There are additional processes and policies and procedures that are being implemented. Um, the post-election, what are they called? Post-election audits are something that, that are attempt, being attempted and, and legislation is being passed uh, in, a, in a number of states to look at, at conducting these audits. Um, to in, then basically verify what was what was cast versus what was the outcome. Yeah. Um, but there's that also, I think, you know, to, to state the obvious, that requires a, a capability within the voting system itself that not all um, voting systems currently have. So yeah. therefore, we need additional resources, we need to train people, et cetera, et cetera. But um, is it possible? Yes. Is it likely to have an impact? Highly likely it will not. Yeah. So Josephine, thoughts on voting on voting machines in particular. I mean, Andy, I'm coming to you in a second. Um, but thoughts on thoughts on whether we whether we've done enough on voting machines, whether that's a real concern. And um, uh, and, I, and then I've got another question for you, uh, Josephine, from the audience. So, but but thoughts on voting machines in particular. 
So I'm, I'm perhaps a little less optimistic than Megan that there's no chance they could have an impact. I totally agree with her point that you could infiltrate a lot of voting machines and it would be hard to do at scale for the entire yeah. country. On the other hand, I would say you wouldn't need to do it at scale for the entire country to be able to mm. have an impact, right? And when we think about kind of which are the states that everybody's very focused on in the lead up to a presidential election or which are the local and state races that people care about, you could potentially have a significant impact just by being right. able to compromise voting machines in a few different very specific places. So yeah. I, I agree that there's some security in the fact that it would be hard to sort of change the vote totals for the whole country in one go. I think there's still a lot more that can be done. Megan brought up the rate limiting audits in which there's an automatic audit triggered after each election to see sort of from a small sample of votes, does the, do the results uh, align with the final yeah. tallies? And if you find a discrepancy, you keep going. We also talk a lot about paper uh, receipts for votes. When yes. We talk about yes. Digital voting machines and sort of that being a really useful tool for security. And there are a lot of states and a lot of uh, regions within certain states that still don't have either of those things in their yeah. voting machines. So no, I don't think we've done nearly yeah. as much as we could have. And there are a lot of reasons for that. There are some states that have been very resistant to any of the sort of support or guidance coming out of the Department of Homeland Security. There's been uh, a lot of concern on the part of different localities that they're going to have to spend a lot of money to buy new right. voting machines. Be very yeah. expensive and a lot of them don't want to do that. So it's not that there aren't sort of good reasons sometimes why this has been slow, but I don't think we've made very much progress there. Can I, can I just ask you a follow up on that question? So, um, you know, one of the things that people often talk about in this space is, you know, you mentioned auditability, you mentioned uh, paper receipts and the like. Um, are we concerned at all that uh, we do one of these audits, we realize, oh no, there was a problem. And then we have to sort of revisit the entire results of an election in one jurisdiction or in one state. Maybe the answer is that's the right thing to do because if the results are wrong, they were wrong, right? But are we worried about that itself, that audit process and the questions it raises undermining confidence in elections also? Or is it better just you sort of go rip the bandaid off, get through that, get the right answer, and you can correct it on the back end? So I think it's better to do that unequivocally. I think it's better to say, we're gonna examine every election. We're going to make sure if there's something that looks weird, we're digging into it. I would have greater confidence in an election that was audited, a discrepancy was found, it was tracked down or you know redone in some way that people felt confident about the results than I would have in an election where we said, we're not gonna do any audit. We're never gonna question the first tallies that come out. We're just gonna move on and look forward. Yeah. So Andy, one of our one of our uh, one of our uh, uh, people from the audience, Dewan Haynes, asked um, whether we we as Americans have become lazy, you know, relying on social media and the like for for the truth of what's being asserted, or is it more of an issue that we've we've now we don't have reliable sources to go to anymore? There's no Walter Cronkite, as it were, for those of you old enough to remember Walter Cronkite. Um, is it just that there, we don't we can't really we don't feel like we can trust MSNBC or Fox because they're they're partisan on both sides? CNN, people are concerned has has gotten that way also. Um, is, is that the issue or are we just lazy and we're just going to read whatever we're just push twist through the algorithms and we see people that agree with us. Great. We just drive into that. And that's what, what's the problem here. I mean, you've worked on election campaigns. What, what's going on here? I think I think the core problem is, is a is a broader problem of lack of trust uh, over time in institutions in general. Right. So you see this globally. It's not. It's not uh, a, a problem that is that is only found in the United States, but that skepticism leads to only trusting what you already are predisposed to believe, 
which leads to tuning out uh, things that you don't want to hear, uh, which can be dangerous because they can be right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, um, so Megan, um, one of our questioners asked about uh, this recent report coming out of uh, the DNI's office from John Ratcliffe of uh, the new DNI uh, about R Iran and Russia's influence on our elections. Um, and one of the points that was made during this whole conversation uh, with with Ratcliffe about about Iran and Russia, the short, the short actually, um, was that they've obtained voter information, right? They've obtained um, they're directing misinformation of voters using voter databases, right? Um, the questioner asked whether we should think about reducing the availability of voter information. Should we? Try to reduce the voter names, addresses, voting history uh, for these type of tactics. And Andy, I want to come ask you about this because I know you've been involved in elections. And Josephine, you might have some thoughts on this too. Uh, but you know, one of the reasons why we have public voter databases is so the campaigns can call voters and get them out to vote and encourage their voters and the like. And that's why we do these things. Should we should we curtail that? Because now we're seeing foreign nation states exploit those systems to also get direct access to voters. At the risk of pissing off a lot of people, I think so. I, I think there ought to be at least some kind of um, showing that you are legitimately affiliated with uh, the elections process. If you're a registered PAC or something, if you're a, a designated a registered campaign, we need to make the hurdles a little bit um, higher for this. The challenge yeah. now, though, is that all of this information is out there, and we're not going to be able to scrape it from the web. So what do we do now? Yeah. Um, so uh, I do want to come back really quickly, if I may, to yeah, a point please. that Josephine made. I, and I, I think it's also a very well taken point, which is to say, also, even if the voting system is compromised, whether or not it can have scale, the ability to compromise it and make news about that compromise can have a deleterious impact on the election and voter confidence in the election, but forcing people to question the outcome, even right. if it was only in one small precinct in one, in one state that may or may not have um, a significant amount of, of of sway in the outcome of the election. So definitely something for, that we should be mindful of and, and figuring out how to, to message around that as well um, is something that I think we still have a lot of work to do. So, yeah. um, so back so, to voter registration databases, it's, it's um, you know, the question too, I think is, is can we also, if we aren't able to, to scrape this information off of the web, which is we can't do, and maybe we should or should not do because it was lawfully obtained in the first instance, um, can we work with the places that we know that it's being hosted to help them better analyze, uh, you know, the, the 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 viewers of the data? Uh, so, for example, if if hmm. the voter registration database for the state of South Carolina is sitting on a server yeah. somewhere, uh, can we work with that provider to say, can you please do a little bit of better job of of looking for indicators of 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 we can't call it compromise, right? This information is public, but indicators of of examination and exploitation, and, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. So, Andy, what do you think? I mean, is it is it is it is Megan? Megan mean, sounds like she has a pretty reasonable proposal, right? It's not that you keep it away from campaigns; it's just you make somebody make, demonstrate that I'm part of a, a, a an official campaign or the like. And and how does that play out with some of these um, so-called super PACs or outside spending entities that maybe don't want to disclose who they are? Should they have to demonstrate that they have a valid interest in the election too? Or I mean, and then and then where's the line between that and the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians? Yeah, I think some, you know, trying to insert some common sense here uh, would definitely make some sense. Um, not to say the the Russians or the Chinese or the Iranians would work around it, but you know, differentiating the National Democratic Party or the National Republican Party from an LLC in Cyprus uh, might be a good place. Seems like not hard, right? Yeah. So, so Josephine, one, I want, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but I also want to ask. Uh, there's a question from Kristen Vaccaro because it goes to something you had talked about. Um, and she says that, you know, one of the challenges the platforms face 
um, is that they have to identify misinformation and disinformation all on their own. Are there ways that we can support sort of cross-platform work or incentivization uh, for them to share information about the bad actors are seeing their tactics, techniques, and procedures? Can we, can we help them do that? Is there, is there a way the government can sort of create incentives to make more of that happen? That's a great question. Um, and I think, I think there probably are ways that we could try to help. And I think one of the most obvious ways, frankly, that we could help would be through, you know, some of the legislative proposals like the Honest Ads Act, the things that set really clear rules for them yeah. about, and not that they would do that as helping necessarily, but I think sort of long-term that would actually provide a lot of clarity and give them a sense of sort of what they need to be doing and right. how that should work, what that looks like in other domains for advertising that aren't online. Um, I do think there have been some efforts by yeah. kind of, neutral third parties or people billing themselves as neutral third parties at rating the quality of different news outlets and news articles at yes. trying to sort of provide some outside assessment of the quality of news. And we've seen some of these platforms partner with some of those. It's fraught because what the platforms would ideally like from those sort of forms of assistance is first of all, a way to not have to do the work themselves, uh, figuring out is this you know real or fake or somewhere in between. And second of all, a way of, of having somebody else do that work that does not seem politically partisan, that does not go back to the problem of them getting in trouble with yeah. people from parties. And that's been really hard to do, right? It hasn't turned out that there are a lot of these third parties who are willing to do this kind of work that all of the different politicians look at and say, yes, we agree with them. We trust them. And so and, that's been really hard. And why is that? Why is, why is it that we haven't seen more third parties? And to the extent we have seen third parties, why is it that we don't, why, why is it that sort of politicians and we can't all agree on these are some trustworthy sources, right? I mean, what is it because we inherently we've, we're sort of in the mode of assuming that everyone's got a bias? Is that what's going on here? Why, why, is, why is that the case? It's like it, it, it's I mean, reasonable this is, to this do. Is yeah. My own prejudice and it will sound that way. So I probably don't even need to preface that. But I, I think I would say the reason that we can't get to a lot of assessment around that is that when you have the president himself directly promoting on these media platforms fake news stories, it's very hard to imagine a world in which all of the politicians in the country are going to agree that something that's fake is a sort of neutral decision right. about what should be and so I think yeah. it has been really politically charged. I think that you've seen yeah. a lot of disagreement about whether fake news yeah. should even be removed or should be labeled. Yeah, I mean, look, to be fair, to be fair, we've seen this happen on both sides. And, and the president is certainly the, the king of doing this, uh, right? But we, we just saw recently, in fact, uh, some of my friends at the Lincoln Project, right, um, who are opposed to the president, um, uh, retweeted some of the stuff that now we've determined, the Proud Boys emails that we now, now have determined to be part of an Iranian effort. How do we... How do you avoid that? Is that, is that even a solvable problem, right? Like these sort of legitimate uh, folks and, or people who are essentially legitimate, right? Uh, sort of re-broadcasting tropes um, and, and narratives that are being either created by others or worse, you know, or, or, or at least related, um, these foreign actors retreating and passing on tropes that are created by Americans because they have a political ax to grind or a view or a, or a conspiracy theory. Is, is there really a way to disaggregate these things and, and sort of separate out the foreign piece from what, what may be bad free speech, but it's still free speech. So I think you could separate out the foreign piece when it comes to financial transactions, when you're talking about mm. purchasing ads, right? Yeah. And that, that I think is something we really haven't done with the online ad space. Um, and once there's a financial transaction involved, then you have more potential to do that. Not 
not perfectly, right? Some of the charges brought against the Russians from the 2016 election were about how they were taking over people's PayPal accounts to pose as Americans and pay for ads on social media that way. So it's not an absolute solution. I do think there's a way of doing that though. I think when it comes to just like who's tweeting and what country are they in, that's really hard. That's not, I think, a a path that we want to go down in terms of saying, you know, this person is a US person, they're allowed to tweet this stuff, but not this other person. And I don't think any of the platforms have have tried. Yeah. Yeah. So Andy, you know, you worked in the space where we're, where we were sort of thinking about how to actively combat other types of disinformation in in the covert action intelligence space. Um, You know, uh, Carl Chandler asks, you know, as we, as it becomes clear that we are in an increasingly contested cyber battle space, right, information battle space, right? When do these attacks of misinformation and cybersecurity threats um, that are identified as hostile threats, when do they when do they rise to the point that, you know, we've got to start taking action to either combat them directly or escalate our response? Um, and what about this issue of deniability, right? We know that we undertake intelligence operations all the time against foreign actors, um, and we deny that we're doing them, and we know that they're going to do the same. Um, does that complicate our response, our ability to attribute, and then our ability to actually make a decision to, in fact, respond? And, and if so, how, how, how aggressive should our response be? Yeah, you know, I do think we've learned uh, some lessons from, from 16, this, this latest uh, Iran-Chinese uh, operation or the Iran operation that you mentioned, uh, Jamil, is, is a pretty good example of the intelligence community acting really quickly for them uh, in, in ascribing attribution to, to an operation that normally, if ever was confirmed, might take a year or two. In the mat- they did it in a matter of, of days. Um, they understood the urgency. They understood, you know, we're, uh, whatever we are, 12 days out from a national presidential election. I thought, you know, it was a pretty good sign that, that a lesson had been learned there. Yeah. Um, it gets really difficult um, to to do that on every little uh, bot and tweet that the Russians have set up, uh, you know, that's pinging from all around the world to launch these these attacks. Um, you know, when Twitter has done the uh, designation of a U.S. or a foreign government account, which you know provides some context for, say, the you know Chinese ambassador to the U.S. and what he has to say on a topic. Now, I read that. Okay, I. I take that with a grain of salt, right? Um, or a pile of salt. Or a pile of salt. That's impossible to do with all the, I think, all the Russian bots uh, in yeah. the West. Um, so that becomes difficult. Uh, you know, obviously our, the best way to combat this is, is with, is with uh, you know, putting uh, sunlight on the situation, giving people information. Hopefully people will be educated enough to, to draw the right conclusion. I think this yeah. Iran example is, is a pretty good one of getting it about as right or close to right as we'd want. Yeah. So Megan, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, foreign influence and, and those have operations. Um, but Jacob Schenker, one of our, uh, one of our uh, uh, NSI students, um, uh, asked about um, the threat vectors that we're facing in this, in this election uh, cycle and it was elections more generally. Um, what, 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 what concerns you most? What do you think is the highest risk area? Is it the foreign influence that we spent all this time talking about? Or is it something else? I, I, know, that, I know that probably isn't election systems, uh, but is it, is, it, uh, is it the sort of inherent vulnerability of our networks? I know the GCA, your organization, spends a lot of time looking at cyber vulnerabilities. Is it improperly configured devices? What's, what, what, what worries you? What keeps you up at night when it comes to elections? So I would say it's, the combina- it's a combination of two things. First is kind of the, thanks for the, the, the um, 
the commercial for uh, for GCA, we as an organization are really focused on helping people influence, excuse me, implement cyber hygiene. So the concern I would have is is the absence of good cyber hygiene practices by basically everyone in this space, from the voter to, uh, in some cases, elections administrators, but also campaigns. We know the campaigns are still horrible at, for example, two-factor authentication. So maybe we haven't right. still learned that lesson. Um, also. Uh, Unique passwords are something that should not be under uh, understated. Um, if you don't know what I'm referring to, just Google it. Um, <laughs> so that's, and the second piece of it, so sort of the lack of hygiene um, throughout the ecosystem. And the second is this resilience question of, okay, so yeah. if, if I'm able to compromise somebody's Twitter account because they can't figure out how to use two-factor authentication and or a unique password, two things that could, in most cases, probably prevent a lot of this, um, setting aside the issue of poor, uh, poor backend management from, for example, a social media platform, which is a whole separate issue. Um, the, the, the lack of resilience within the, within the voting populace. So we can't, you know, yeah. any deal that seems like it's too good to be true, whether it's to buy something or to, to essentially spew vitriol against a, another candidate ought to be taken, as you said, with more than a grain of salt, but a lot of salt. Um, so that's, those are the two yeah. things that I would say, um, give yeah. me a great pause. So I think just too, be, yeah, go ahead. No, keep going, please. We do seem to have come a long way, I think, when it comes to to enhancing the information sharing between some of the key stakeholders in this space. So we know that the tech companies are talking to each other much more. They're now more open about the fact that they're talking to each other, whereas before it was like we're in the secret room, but nobody can know that we're actually talking to each other. Um, yeah. And of course, that can also be manipulated and turned into a great grand conspiracy by tech to, to influence the election. I disagree with that. Um, but I still think there is there is more that can be done to, as I mentioned a couple minutes ago, between elections administrators and working with, with journalists mm -hmm. to try and get more facts into the conversation about the security of systems. You know, We're seeing more folks talk about the fact that we probably won't have results on election night, but I would argue that more can be talked about and why that is and why that that's okay. Um, to the point about post-election audits and the like. So a number of, of additional factual points to enhance resilience, I think, um, could be brought to, brought to the conversation. I do have to add one more point, which is yeah. um, with regard to the, the nice. quickly put together press conference the other night, um, agree wholeheartedly. This is, is great. You could call it progress or it was a great um, a great moment for the intelligence community to to ascribe um, attribution. The thing that we know that the intelligence community does not do in most cases is to ascribe intent. So yeah. I would urge those who are um, looking to ascribe intent to to that story or to future stories that we may see over the next 10 days or 12 days to uh, take a deep breath, pause and think about about how quickly intent could be um, ascribed based on what we know about how long it usually takes to actually uh, identify an attribute attack. Well, Josephine, what about that? I was actually gonna ask that because one of our, one of our, uh, one of our uh, questioners from the audience, Kelly Casolas, asked about um, that very press conference, right? Um, and uh, were, we, were you surprised by that press conference? Do you think that um, uh, back in 2016, would the FBI have done that? Are they be more transparent now? Or there are a lot of people who said, look, this is just an effort by the Trump administration to divert attention from Russia and talk about Iran. And in fact, uh, in fact, this is, you know, the, 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 the connection to Iran is, is tenuous at best. Um, what, what, what do you think about all that? Um, I, I don't know what was going through anybody's head, of course. I would say on the whole, I'm in favor of more transparency about all the actors involved in the election. I don't mm -hmm. think that 
there is anything really to be lost by talking about what Iran is doing and a lot to be gained by having an understanding of sort of all of the different actors. I appreciate that there are a lot of different actors and a lot of different foreign actors sort of interested and involved in this election in various ways. So I don't, I don't really think that sort of if that was the strategy, and I have no idea if it was, mm-hmm. that's a reason to feel that this is not sort of useful and important information to be making known. And I would also say, you know, at the, at the same time, almost also this past week, we saw an indictment come out of the Department of Justice about right. Russian hacking and Russian yes. interference, not in the 2016 election, though there have been indictments about that in the past but about a whole bunch of other things that that same unit has done, including interfere in French elections. So I've yes. been honestly a little bit impressed by how much activity I've seen and sort of how much transparency I've seen. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's more than we had prior to the 2016 election. I also think there are a lot of reasons for that, right? I think it's probably mm-hmm. true that we are tracking this much more closely, that we have a lot more information about what we should be looking for and where we should be mm-hmm. looking for it. And I think there's also a lot more pressure on the government right now than there was four years ago because we've got private actors like most notably right. Microsoft coming out with public reports about what China's doing, what Russia's yes. doing, what Iran is yes. doing. And, and so there's, there's less of an ability for them to just try to sort of not make it a public thing. Yeah, yeah. And you see these private actors combating it. What do we think about that? We've seen Microsoft working with the government actively to take on the TrickBot uh, uh, ransomware network with the concern that it might be used for, for election interference. Do we... Is this the role, do we want, or, or do we have no choice but to have private actors playing this role? And if so, what's the role of the government working with these private actors in this space, in your mind, Jesse? So again, I think it's really complicated. I do think we want them involved, right? I don't yeah. think that we can do this without some partnership from the private sector. I, I don't think there's any way to sort of understand all of the different machines that are involved in these bots to reach them all as quickly yeah. So I think that's a positive. I think the question is sort of who do we want leading this? Who do we want yeah, driving these decisions? Um, and that's an area where I would say you've you've seen perhaps a little bit more willingness on the part of the U.S. government to take a backseat to let the private sector make some of these decisions. And whether that's because the U.S. government is you know already at capacity and has a lot of other things to worry about, or whether that's because this is sort of more a priority for the private sector, it's a little Mm -hmm. hard for me to say. I do think that's sort of the thing that the private sector does not really do. And Microsoft said this very explicitly in their reports was they're not responsible for securing the actual election infrastructure, right? All of the sort of voting machine stuff we've talked about today is not gonna be the job of Microsoft, of Google. Google's also been very involved in a lot of the stuff Megan was talking about, sort of reaching out to campaigns, trying to help make sure that their security and their hygiene is up to speed. So I think we've seen a lot of great stuff from the private sector. I'm in favor of much of it, but I also think there are pieces of it that they can't do and pieces of yeah. it that we probably don't want them to take the lead on. Yeah. Yeah. So Andy, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Uh, you know, what is the right role and the right balance? I mean, should the, should the private entities be in charge and be in the lead on this stuff or should, should the government clearly, I think it just means right. They have to be involved. And then on a related issue, Dave Blake makes a point uh, and Dave works with the national association. I think of attorney generals. Um, he, is, he says, look, you, we're assuming almost all federal action, right? But the elections, of course, are run mostly by the states and localities. Um, do we think information sharing uh, at that level is, is sufficient? Do we think they're adequately empowered? Um, or um, does it, should it just have to be handled at the federal level? Andy, what, so what's your thoughts on, on those two related issues? I think the, the feds have the most clear role and come in with any foreign action, right? So um, if you know, bad guy X overseas is going after election systems in, you know, Missouri, um, 
they're they're going to be the ones that collect that. They're going to be the ones that analyze that, and they're the only ones who can who can pass that along. Um, so I, I do think we've seen uh, through uh, CISA at the Department of Homeland Security um, some pretty good engagement um, yeah. with the states. Um, in my opinion, um, it, kind of a no nonsense. Here's what we're seeing. Here's the best practices. Here's what you should be doing. Here's some money to get you, help get you there. These those are all a perfectly appropriate federal roles that we do with mm -hmm. things like law enforcement training, education. You can go on, mm -hmm. on down the line of things that are federal priorities, but state administered. Uh, right. Roads, highways, um, go on down the line. I think this fits nicely in there. It's very tricky, in my opinion, this the private sector, uh, where the private sector leads up, leaves off, where the feds pick up on any of these influence operations. Mm. Um, that that seems like uh, I don't know what the right answer is there. Um, seems like it's they have made some improvements this cycle over the past two. Um, but I think, as we stated earlier, you're going to be darned if you don't darned if you do on a lot yeah. of this stuff uh, from both sides, from the private sector yeah. and the feds. So Megan, do you have thoughts on, on this question of the public-private mix, who should be in the lead and and the role of the federal versus the states? And also um, a question from Tom Stauffer uh, for the audience. Um, is there any reason to worry that hostile foreign actors are focused on swing states in particular? And if so, how does that affect the response either at the federal or the state level uh, uh, to these kind of actions? So taking the, the second question first, um, I don't know, I don't have inside information. I'm not, a, not an employee of the government anymore, but I would assume that that yes, foreign actors might be doing that, but also yes, yeah. DHS, CISA, um, Matt Masterson and, and Chris Krebs are doing, among many others over there, are doing a fantastic job with, with what they can to try and get out to the States too. And I would yeah. imagine that they are also looking at, you know, doing threat modeling and saying, where should we be looking at resources? Of course, I think Andy made the point that, uh, and, and Josephine did as well, that, that the, um, the willingness to engage with CISA is, is um, inconsistent across the states and mm. we can perhaps understand why that is, but I would urge the states to, to not be so- yeah, why, uh, why is that? Engaged. I think there's a strong sense of this is our space. Um, you know, mm. elections have been delegated from down to the states and yeah. down to the local level and stay out of here with your, you know, your Washington stuff. Yeah. Um, the federal sort of too, issues. States not rights. to be too flip and, and just, I don't mean any disrespect to those folks, but- yeah. Um, with regard to the question of, of who should be in the lead here, I, I don't think we've, I agree, I don't think we've settled on a good, a good balance um, in that, in, and I don't know that it is a balance, but um, there are, as, as we all know, there are now enhanced capabilities for a range of actors to share information. And as I understand it, there, there is a good amount of information sharing between those elections officials who are on top of this and who are interested in, in supporting each other and helping each other protect the elections. Um, but there is, again, still, I think, room for growth. And, uh, you know, those states that are not engaging with CISA, you know, are there, is there another mechanism by which we can still try to reach them? Is the National yeah. Governance Association a, a, a way, you know, is there another way in that, that yeah. that's a more trusted entity that, that can also bring these resources? There are a number of nonprofits, other nonprofits in this space who are also working to try and reach across, um, across different spectrums uh, yeah. and across different states. And probably there's, there ought to be a, a, a probably less um, concern over engagement between some of these nonprofits that do know where some of these, these challenges yeah. lie and integration and, and collaboration with, with CISA yeah. and others, because we need to get to a good place, not be yeah. um, 
just keep simple mind. About so it. Maggie, you know, given given that we've talked about some of the some of the spots where there's vulnerabilities and where people might you know focus their efforts, uh, one of our guests actually asked sort of a funny question. Um, any reason to believe, and maybe not, maybe not so funny. Um, any reason to believe that for an actor that you monitor talks like these uh, to get ideas about what they ought to do? I, I saw that question too. That? Um, more power to you. Yeah. Good Hello to the you. Chinese um, government that's right. on Zoom right now. Gotcha. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think yeah. those of us who are, I think we we all, particularly from this space, think twice before usually, or may not always, but I try to think twice before I say something that might be particularly uh, revealing revealing or yeah. hopefully pretty stupid too, but not always. So, um, yeah, that's so, uh, so, uh, Justine, do you, uh, one of our guests wants to know, should we be worried that the kind of intense political polarization that we've seen in the last four years, um, should we be worried that that, that that's a national security issue in and of itself? Because clearly we know that our, uh, enemies want to create polarization, want to create discord and unhappiness. Do we worry that having that sort of playing into that, that our politicians sort of driving polarization efforts is that are they creating a bigger national security issue and if so what should we do about it that's a probably a harder and a broader question that i can really answer i will say sort of from my domain which is cybersecurity, it's yeah. definitely created a lot of issues sort of how yeah. polarized cybersecurity has become and this idea that kind of 10 years ago when we were talking about cybersecurity legislation, it's not that everybody agreed, but that everybody mm -hmm. sort of had the same idea about what it would yeah. mean to have a more secure internet in the United States and what that should look like. And the exact mechanics of how you got there were sometimes controversial. Right. But I would say that's gotten less and less true to the point that now there are fairly polarized and fairly political ideas about sort of what should we be asking of intermediaries? What would more secure social media platforms mm -hmm. look like? How should we get there? And so I think sort of in that respect, yes, it's created a, a yeah. national security issue because some of the things that we used to think of both parties as being able to agree on and come to mm -hmm. some consensus about have become much more politically charged. And this whole yeah. question of sort of what is cybersecurity? What does the secure internet look like? What do we want it to look like? Has become much, much harder to resolve. So yeah. I think sort of in the abstract, yes, it's created a, a challenge for trying to make progress on that front. Um, yeah. I think presumably it's created issues sort of in other national security domains, even outside of cybersecurity as well, but I'm, I'm less well-versed on those. Yeah. So Andy, I mean, you've worked in politics and you know, you've, you've been on election campaigns. What do you think? I mean, is it is it is political polarization part of the problem? And we know we know that our our and our adversaries are trying to stoke that. Um, can we can we is there is there and if it is part of the problem, is there anything we can do to get back to a a, a more rational, more substantive conversation? I mean, we we had a debate last night, which sort of astoundingly was not was not the train wreck that was that the first debate was. Can we? Is it, is it, can we expect more of that? We just saw an ad from two of the Utah uh, candidates running against each other, where they sort of appeared on the same ad and both endorsed this ad. You know, talked about how they how they can be they can disagree on issues without disagreeing personally. I mean, is this is that real, or do I live in some little fake bubble of a world where the last night's debate was normal and 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 these, these sort of ads where people are actually holding hands and singing some version of political kumbaya are actually realistic? I think probably uh, that is is not likely in the in the near term. Uh, you know, we're, we're a very divided country politically right now. I don't have to tell anybody on this call. Uh, we're about to embark on a very charged uh, national election here in 12 days. 
in whatever it is, 13 days. And, um, you know, we're all going to go home for uh, Thanksgiving, hopefully carefully outdoors or whatever safe way you're going to do it. And you'll find lots of different opinions, certainly at my Thanksgiving, I suspect yeah. at, at all of yours on, on the path forward. And, you know, these are uh, intense disputes. And because, you know, it would it would be easier almost if one side, you know, had two thirds opinion in the country and the other side had one third or, or vice versa. Yeah. Um, but it is it is very close, very, very polarized. I do think where we can draw the line as a country and where everyone can can unite around is, hey, we have our problems. We fight it out like cats and dogs inside, uh, you know, when the when the doors close in our own house and we take care of business and vote and move forward. What we can't have is outside uh, foreign actors trying to tell us the right path. Um, right. That's something we all ought to be able to agree that that we just can't allow. Right. Right. So, uh, so Megan, um, one of the questions asked, and I know that you work in the technology space. So, um, you know, would the application of AI solutions solve any of these problems? Can we, can, can AI, we always talk about AI and quantum are going to change the world. Quantum is always 10 years away perpetually. Um, uh, can AI solve any of these problems, uh, or at least, um, at least, uh, the, this issue of bias that, uh, that, um, as Josephine raised with, with trusted third parties, can, we, can AI help us create trusted third parties or do the same problems exist in the algorithms? I think. At this point in time, anyways, we're still we have some challenges left with the algorithms, or maybe yeah. not just some some pretty major bias, implicit bias in, in algorithms. We know that um, humans ourselves are biased, and so when we're generating, we're developing algorithms and and generating other types of technologies, we're bringing that to the, to yeah. the question. So I think you know that being said, with enhanced information sharing, looking at anomalies is not going to find every single problem, but the ability to actually look at for anomalous behavior or yeah. very, very non-anomalous behavior, um, right? So those, something just seems to be working too smoothly here. I would be looking at that as well. Yeah. Um, so. So I'm gonna take one last question for the audience from Kelly Casolas, and I'm gonna go, ask each one of you to respond in the, in the minute, minute or so we have left for each of you. Um, we're seeing huge early voting turnout, right? That has uh, apparently has the ability to bring a lot more people into the election uh, and, and, and give them the ability to vote. Uh, are we concerned that early voting um, uh, allows uh, foreign foreign entities to be able to interfere more effectively? Do we have concerns about early voting? The president has raised concerns. How worried are you? We'll start with Josephine. We'll go through Andy, Megan, and then we'll wrap up. Josephine, thoughts? So I haven't heard of any stories of foreign influence sort of specifically targeting early voters. So it hasn't been a big concern of mine. I'll say one of the reasons I like it from a security standpoint is that early voting happens on paper. So you have that paper trail, you have that ability to audit if you need it. So in that regard, I sort of view it as a, a net win from the election security standpoint. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Uh, Andy, thoughts? I think I generally agree with that. I'm a big fan of paper, right? cast your votes on a piece of paper so we can go back and count it if, if it's wrong. Um, this, you know, when we started towards this trend of internet voting, that's when all of our uh, hair went up on our back, I'm sure. Um, the only thing I'd say that makes me a little nervous on, on early voting, some early voting was happening two months ago. Let's say a sophisticated uh, foreign adversary dropped a nugget of uh, incorrect or incomplete information yeah. in that state, say Oregon or somewhere, and influenced people's decisions two months before the actual election. Now, two months later, we realize, oh, that wasn't really the case. Uh, maybe I would have voted differently. That's the only thing that makes yeah. me a little nervous is people are voting maybe when they don't have all the information yeah. that they need yeah. to, to cast that vote. That's all. Yeah. Megan, last thoughts. I agree with 
with Josephine, I'm, I'm more comfortable with it from a, from among other things we know, I think it's like 91 or 92% of, of ballots cast. This includes actual not absentee voting ahead of time, but can be um, traced back to pay, we can we have the paper trail, right? So we need to have confidence in that, whether it is absentee voting ahead of time or whether it's in-person voting on the day of elections, um, we, we all need to take a, a deep breath and, and let's stick with the facts and work to help uh, those trying to get them out there, get them out there. Got it. Well, listen, thanks, uh, Megan, Andy, uh, Josephine. Really appreciate you all being here today. Thank you to the, the National Law Journal, the National Law Journal for co-sponsoring this with us with NSI. Uh, feel free to check us out on the web at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Thank you to the audience, General Hayden. Thanks for being here. Everybody have a great afternoon. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.